I'm Pete Vernon, and this is The Kicker, CJR's podcast about all things media. Last year, The New York Times took the audio world by storm with the launch of its news podcast, The Daily. Now, it's digging into narrative storytelling with a new podcast about ISIS. Caliphate is The Times' first foray into serialized podcasting. In it, reporter Rukmini Kalamaki gets inside the mind of ISIS with the help of producer Andy Mills. At the time, she's become known for her groundbreaking reporting on terrorism and the Islamic State, and the new podcast expands on that work. Caliphate is intense, immersive, and intimate, and it brings us so much closer to understanding how ISIS operates. On today's episode, my colleague Meg Dalton spoke to Rukmini about her history covering ISIS and how the podcast came to be. Then, we'll tackle some of the biggest media stories of the week, including the sourcing behind the New York Times' scoop about the questions Robert Mueller wants to ask Donald Trump and the Kanye controversy. Before we get into all that, here's Meg's conversation with Rukmini. So, Rukmini, you've been telling the story of ISIS on the pages of the New York Times for years now. Mm-hmm. Why did it make sense to take those stories to a new medium? Huh. Um, <laughs> well, to be to be perfectly frank, uh, it was actually Andy and our editor, Sam Dolnick, uh, who came to me in 2016 and asked me if I'd be interested, you know, to do to do a podcast. I I love podcasts. Um, I was a huge fan of Serial. And so so the idea was intriguing. I really had no idea what was down the pipe and what was involved. Andy in his interview at the New York Times to get hired for a job here said that he wanted to work with me on a podcast. And apparently I was I was offered up for this podcast without anybody <laughs> ever asking me about it. Thank God I was really thank God I was like I thought it was a good idea or else uh, things might have gone differently. So how did you go about adapting your usual reporting process for the ear versus the eye? The the narrative device that we finally like fell upon after trying a bunch of different things was that the the narrative arc that made the most sense was for Andy to accompany me in in a year of my reporting on this beat, which is a, a which is I you know I I think a pretty unusual beat with a lot of difficult ethical quandaries and um, and interesting characters. Um, so that was, but that was after several false starts where we we at first had this notion of a symphonic podcast with multiple characters that completely fell flat. <laughs> I mean, one of the things I learned as a as a writer is, of course, when you have when you're writing a text, you can assume that you, you try to be as clear as you can. You have to follow a structure that leads people along, but you do have the benefit that people can glance back at the paragraph that they're that before the one that you're writing right Mm -hmm. if they get lost if they if they forget somebody's name and with audio yes people can rewind but it's just much harder i i feel that you have to hew to um a structure that in a way is more simple more more natural uh because it's so easy to lose the listener yeah, I, I really like that you focus each episode on one piece of the the larger ISIS puzzle. So like the first one is more about your reporting process, the second about recruitment and so on. In total, there will be 10 episodes released weekly on Thursdays. How did you map out the larger story of ISIS across the series, especially when it sounds like the reporting and producing is, is still ongoing? <laughs> I mean, the truth is we're still building part of the back end uh, of the podcast. Um, so that's still ongoing. But um, but 
we had this incredible interview with Abu Huzaifa Al-Kanadi. That's not his real name, but that's the, the nom de guerre that we're using for the member of ISIS that we met in Canada. And so so one one spine is his his recruitment into ISIS, his arrival into the Islamic State held territory, what he does there, and and then his reemergence from it, because obviously we're speaking to him in Canada. And we started to think of that as in a way an allegory for the rise and um and and partial fall of ISIS. The other narrative device is is my trajectory through this year of reporting, and it happened to be a really eventful year. There were um, there were numerous terrorist attacks, and there was also the fall of Mosul. There were the documents that we found uh, alongside Iraqi troops that we were embedding with, and so that was the sort of the second through line that carried us through. Yeah, I really like that you and Andy are both characters in the story. Mm-hmm. Um, so why did you think that was important to incorporate yourselves in that way instead of being more removed from it? The aesthetic of of caliphate is that it's not scripted, right? This is not this is not me reading lines uh, into the microphone, and so uh, so without having a host in the in the regular sense that you have in you know many of the famous podcasts that we know about that is leading the listener you know down this path. Instead, the device that we came across was was Andy and I kind of riffing uh, on on the Islamic State, and he. He becomes a proxy for the audience. He is, is I think, genuinely curious uh, about ISIS. He's asking me questions about it. I'm trying to respond based on both my knowledge and the reporting that we're doing. And in that interaction, Andy becomes a proxy for the listener. He becomes the, the question that you're thinking of, hopefully, as we're going on this journey together. And it gets pretty personal at some points. There was a moment... Uh, when you talk about the toll it takes, the, the mm-hmm. toll the work takes on you, like that 911 yeah. phone call uh, when you thought ISIS was maybe at your front <laughs> yeah. door. So can you speak a little bit about how your work has affected the way that you report? I mean, this is, to be honest, I've been, you know, I've been a reporter since the year 2001. And I've had every beat imaginable. I used to be a cops reporter, a city hall reporter. I covered business in Oregon. I covered the reconstruction of the city of New Orleans. This is by far the weirdest, the oddest beat that I've ever been on. You're dealing with a secretive organization that has vowed to kill people like you and I, right? And at the same time, I'm trying I'm trying to report as truthfully and um and as deeply as I can on them. So, of course, I'm trying to get as close to them as I can without getting harmed, right? So that means speaking to their fighters, um, speaking to their defectors. Uh, where, where can I do that? I can do that in jails, um, in, in Iraq primarily, uh, on one trip when I was in Syria, uh, in a couple of locations um, in, in Europe and North America. But in general, you're, you're interacting with them online, right? And it's online that they also are able to threaten me, right? They're able to um, call for attacks against me, call for, for you know, issue death threats against me. And um, most of it kind of rolled off for me. It was, I mean, it, they're, in a way, they're so sophomoric in the way they talk because they are, by virtue of who they are, they tend to be millennials, so they're young. Um, and so, they're, so some of their insults are kind of just silly. It kind of hit home for me when the FBI started to come to see me and my editors specifically to discuss what they thought were credible threats against me. And so did that change the way that you went about your job? 
It's changed a couple of things. Um, I'm I'm much more secretive about my movements. Um, so I don't tell a lot of people where I live. You know that obviously people you know that are close to me in the newsroom know where I live, but that that's something that I no longer talk about my, my husband at one point uh, unfriended me on facebook oh my gosh <laughs> because because he couldn't figure out how to like not be associated to me <laughs> um and so so he has like like finally just like unfriended me on facebook and so it's it's cool it's good we we know our relationship is good good but um but that that speaks to that speaks to what this kind of work can sometimes do to your family, you know, where where I, I'm in it. So I understand what's going on. I myself am assessing this threat, but it's it's much more sort of out of proportion, you know, for people that are close to me who are, who, who are not experts in ISIS and who just think it's something scary. Yeah, I mean, it's, it sounds incredibly dangerous and also tricky in, in the sense that, you know, on the one hand, there's the concern that you're giving, you know, ISIS a platform, Right. But on the other, not understanding ISIS is a big reason they've flourished in the first place. So, you know, how do you strike that balance in your reporting and and in this podcast? That's that's one of that's one of the precipices that we're always walking, you know, very close to. And and yes, I think that there is a valid critique that that just by digging into this, you're giving them a platform, you're giving them a voice. But the thing that but the thing that I that I hold dear and that I have learned on this beat is despite the literally the billions of dollars that have been poured into the war on terror, in my opinion, this group, ISIS and, and Al-Qaeda before it, remain incredibly uh, misunderstood. So, for example, I, I can I, I can still get, you know, hundreds of tweets if I just put out a series of tweets about how ISIS files expense reports. And expects, and, and expects their fighters to file expense reports. This is old news to anybody who has followed Al-Qaeda. Anybody who has followed Al-Qaeda going back decades knows that they have a corporate-like structure, that fighters have expense reports, they're supposed to keep receipts, um, they have higher-ups that they're turning these things into, there's budgets, there's projections. But this remains surprising to the vast majority of people, which points to a lack of knowledge you know, about them. And, and and I think in general, we remain, in the general public, we remain very ignorant about what this group is, what it really wants. We keep on telling ourselves various, you know, theories of what, of what they are, which I think just, just serve to make us feel good. And I see my role as trying to, um, as truthfully as possible, report on who they really are, because I think that's material. We're, we're, expense, we're, we're expending so much effort trying to fight this group, um, from the people who are being arrested in our communities to the boots on the ground uh, in, in Iraq and Syria and places like Libya, etc., to the four American soldiers who were killed uh, last October in Niger. And so, and so I think that there is a place for explaining who they are. And that's where I think that my work comes in and Caliphate comes in. Yeah, and that question is the overarching, you know, question of the series: Who are they really? That they, they being ISIS, and so you know, I'm curious: How close are you to answering that question? And is it is it even a question that we can answer? Well, I think that what I what I hope I've achieved in Caliphate is I hope that through these granular, detailed human stories, that we're able to dispel 
some of the myths about this group. And chief among them is I, I think that by, by virtue of how of how horrific uh, the, the actions are that this group you know carries out from how savage um, and horrible their atrocities are, I think that we have a tendency to immediately put them in the boogeyman category and to say that they are psychopaths, they're murderers, they're bloodthirsty. And, and once we put them in that category, they're just kind of on this, on this you know, there's a, they're in this otherworldly space where we can no longer understand them. And in fact, I have sat in the same room with many of them, with several dozen by now. And the thing that strikes me when you're just sitting across from them is they're, they're just people right and some of them are so normal i mean that you know if i met abu huzaifa um sitting next to him at his uh college class uh in canada i think he would just strike me as like a normal kid right and that in a way is it, it speaks to something much deeper about the appeal of this group. Um, they're not just drawing in psychopaths, which is, which is what I think we imagine them to be. They're drawing in people, people of all kinds. Um, people like Huzefa, who in the end is somebody who strikes me as an idealist, you know, strikes me as somebody who wanted something bigger for himself. He, I, I don't think he was drawn in um, because of some sort of bloodlust. A note before we dive into our discussion, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention that 10 journalists were killed in Afghanistan this week, nine of them in a suicide bombing that appeared to target the media. We'll have more reporting on that up at CJR.org soon. But turning to the news of the week, I'm joined by my colleagues, John Ossup and Alex Neeson. Great to have you here, guys. Hey. If I sound sick, it's because I am. Hello. <laughs> so we begin with another New York Times scoop regarding the Mueller investigation. Yeah, so uh, the Times' Matapuzo and Michael Schmidt uh, got their hands on the questions that the special counsel, Robert Mueller, wants to ask uh, Donald Trump. And for the most part, they're what you'd expect, right? Contacts with Russian officials, the president's thinking when he fired James Comey, that kind of thing. Um, but what was perhaps most interesting was how the questions made their way to the Times. Uh, so according to Schmidt, the questions were read to Trump's legal team. Uh, rather than being transmitted, written down. And then a copy of them was provided to the Times by, quotes, a person outside Mr. Trump's legal team. And yeah, I think that that raised some questions for us, right? Yeah, I think the first thing that we asked when we were talking about this in our morning editorial meeting was, what's the motivation for providing these questions, right? Why would someone closely connected to the Trump legal team leak these to the New York Times? So anytime anything is leaked to a journalist, you have to assume that the person doing the leaking has some motivation, uh, some reason that they want this information to be out. And so uh, whether it's a good reason or not, we don't know. But I think it's something to consider. Yeah, and it raises questions for journalists. I mean, speaking of the Times, we saw this with WikiLeaks dumping John Podesta's emails during the 2016 campaign, right? And journalists seem to have a bias. Uh, we can talk about how much they should take into account the source's motivations, but we have a bias towards reporting newsworthy material. And in the case of Podesta's emails, the decision was, this is newsworthy regardless of where it comes from. Um, it does raise questions for readers, and I don't know how many think about that, about, well, okay, I see these questions. Where did they come from, and why would someone give this to the Times? Well, I think, yeah, I think in the case of 
Podesta's emails readers did think a lot about the, the motivations <laughs> yeah. behind their release, right? Um, clearly, these questions are being released into a, a pretty different political context. There's not an active presidential election going on. Clearly, a journalist's bias should be towards publishing information, right? And I don't think anyone in the journalism sphere would credibly say that the Times shouldn't have published this list of questions. Right. Um they were very clear to disclose high up the article how exactly they got them without obviously naming names. Um, and clearly the fact that we're here talking about the possible motivation and the possible kind of chain of how these questions got to the Times uh, indicates that they were transparent about it, right? At the same time, I think I think the kind of important thing is to make sure that even if you decide to go with publishing something that's been leaked to you for a specific reason or to advance a specific agenda, that you're not reporting on it in a way that boosts that agenda. Another thing to consider might be just the number of hands that touch a leak, a thing, before it gets to the desk of a journalist. Um, in this case, it was dictated verbally to someone, and then a copy of that was given to someone outside of the legal team who then gave it to the New York Times. And so, I mean, there's just so many hands in there, so many opportunities uh, for questions to be omitted, for example. Um, I mean, who knows like what the actual full list of questions looks like versus what we got or what the New York Times got and thus what readers and the rest of the public got. It goes back to that sort of high school history lesson that everybody gets, right? You have to consider the source. And I, I want to push back a little bit of against the idea that everyone is talking about it because most of the coverage I've seen is about what the questions are, what it means for Trump and where Mueller's headed. I don't know how much people are thinking about why did someone on the Trump side of things leak these? And definitely journalists are talking about it. The Times obviously made a decision to disclose that high up, as you said. But I wonder how much the general public, the general readership of the Times thinks about where certain information comes from. I think there's also like among readers and, and maybe among journalists too, to consider anything from the Trump camp to be extremely important and perhaps among some camps damning. And so I think we sort of read stories. We come to stories sometimes uh, thinking that like, well, this is going to be huge. Yeah, I think that's a good point. With this particular list of questions, you obviously opens up this kind of Pandora's box of possibilities. It's pretty much the list of questions you would have written if you were following the Mueller investigation through the New York Times, right? I mean, there's nothing especially surprising in there. But then again, do we know what was maybe omitted from it? Do we know if it was just a kind of opening gambit from Mueller to, to get Trump into the room and then ask follow-up questions? I mean, none of that's in the Times article. One thing I think we've heard repeatedly during the Trump administration is that access to information is actually pretty good. There are lots of leaks from inside the White House, right? Information is out there. Um, at the same time, you always have to really doubt the veracity of that information and the agenda of the person giving it to you. But to give the Times credit, these are experienced reporters. They've been at the Trump White House beat for well over a year now. And by this point, they're pretty good at passing what's a reliable leak and, and what isn't. And so when those leaks do happen, I think our message here is just consider the source. All right. And for our second story, we go to one that I thought we managed to skip over last week. But the news cycle has continued to churn out content around this topic. It is perhaps the most 2018 of stories. It mixes celebrity, politics, partisanship, social media, and a general culture of outrage. Of course, I'm talking about Kanye West. So Kanye West broke his Twitter silence recently with a string of tweets um, about a lot of things. He announced some new music. And he also continued what has been this courtship of 
Donald Trump and folks sort of adjacent to Donald Trump. Um, he tweeted, I feel like I feel like he's moved well beyond courtship into <laughs> full blown they're, affair. They're having a, a they're in a relationship now. Um, <laughs> he talked about uh, Candace Owens, a right wing black right wing commentator, um, and said that he liked how she thinks. Um, he referred to Donald Trump as his brother, sort of started him on uh, this days long spiral where he just repeatedly was tweeting support for people who have, in the eyes of many of his fans and in the media, objectionable views. Um, and, and in this sort of apparent reversal, um, this continued reversal from some of his earliest political statements. This is sort of began this media death spiral of hot takes in response to this. So we've seen essays about people sort of reckoning with the fact that this is a person who musically has meant a lot to them and now has these troubling political views. Because he's been making overtly political statements about Donald Trump, that's sort of inherently newsworthy and is this intersection, this familiar intersection of culture and politics. And so we see the Washington Post writing about it. We see the New York Times writing about it. All kinds of uh, sort of mainstream hard news organizations. And and we're sort we sort of feel the fires like we're chasing our own tail because the more that we respond to him, the more the more we write about him, he just keeps saying stuff. He just keeps tweeting. There's been so much content. Like you mentioned the New York Times and Washington Post. It's also the New Yorker and the Atlantic mm-hmm. and the National Review and Trump's own Twitter feed. Mm-hmm. When you get a story like this that seems to hit again the perfect intersection of personality and politics and culture. Is there any way out of that spiral for the media? I don't know. I think I, I don't think that we've figured out like what our role is in covering this. So we cover things that are newsworthy. Kanye West is by himself newsworthy. Uh, anything related to Donald Trump is also newsworthy. Uh, and now these things are coming out. You know, the two are are kind of married in the situation. I don't think that journalists have figured out. What are we supposed to say about this? Uh, Do we just cover it because it happened and it's newsworthy and because our readers care about it? And at what point do we stop? Like, when does the story end? Well, one thing that I think has been driving it is sort of a battle that takes place over any number of political issues between pro-Trump and conservative media on one side and mainstream or left-wing media on the other side. And they're just kind of yelling back and forth at each other with Kanye and Trump somewhere swirling in the middle. Yeah, there's possibly a, a, an extent to which Kanye is a surrogate here, right? And, and you know, the pro-Trump media is so quick to claim him. I mean, look, Kanye, think about how right-wing media has embraced people like Candace Owens, Diamond and Silk. Kanye West is black, right? Ben, ben Carson. Ben Carson. So he can say wild things and and they sort of pounce on it because to them it... Like, I don't know, it's it's like this demographic uh, that they're sort of starved to prove is also, uh, you know, for the black people among us who who really know. And so he sort of like allowed himself uh, to become a mascot in that way. Yeah, it's like a, we have Kanye among the pro-Trump media. It's sort of like a, a, a chip almost or, a, or a, yeah, a mascot or a token. Um, and And I think we have to be... We have to be wary of the significance of what they're claiming. I I just think that, generally speaking, this plays into all sorts of debates that I think have always existed, right? Culture and politics have always kind of been married together. Um, There have always been sort of like authorship debates, right? Do do fans own art and the proclamations of the artist, or is that a completely stupid point of view? Uh, You know, what do we do with art that we really admire by people who we come to disagree with or who do bad things? I mean, these are all completely legitimate and interesting conversations to have. It's the media's place to be a 
to be a kind of forum for those conversations. Um, I think a problem we've had is the increasing personalization of coverage, both of politics and of culture. And I don't think it's an accident we've seen intense personalization in, in both of those realms. Media houses are like clearly very desperate for clicks, clearly desperate for traffic. And in this age where we have such a kind of intense cult of celebrity, personality-driven coverage gets those clicks. Even if it's in politics, say, during a political campaign. Right, exactly. Now, personalization of those genres is nothing new, but I think we're reaching a sort of fever pitch with it where savvy celebrities know that they can say something particularly outrageous and they can drive that click factory. And I just wonder that the media might be getting to a point now where it's in danger of losing control of the momentum of that coverage. And while it's the media's responsibility to cover newsworthy events, the media also needs to be in control of the pace and the tone of its coverage. If we get to a point where we're kind of reactively chasing someone who knows how to push the media's buttons, then we get Trump, right, who was a culture figure and is now a political figure. The media was a big part of that. I think you're giving uh, our collective media too much credit. I think we've already lost control of that, that that train is well off the rails. I mean, it's this is what what we're seeing, what we keep seeing happen with Kanye West feels and looks like exactly what happened with Donald Trump during the election and, and what has continued through his presidency. We have to cover this, but we haven't we haven't quite figured out the tone and the pace and like, when do we stop? When do we move on to the next thing? And so he does something and we react and we write about it. And then he reacts to us and keeps doing the things that we're going to keep reacting to and keep writing about. And so it becomes this sort of cycle that that we get trapped in. And I think that that's the danger here. That was our show. Thanks for kicking it with us. Thanks especially to The New York Times' Rukmini Kalamaki for speaking with Meg earlier, and to my colleagues, Alex and John, as always. Please check out all the great content we've got up at cjr.org, and we'll see you next week.